This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. What do I owe this extreme pleasure, sir? Anything wrong, sir? Wrong? Why should you think of anything being wrong? Welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. As we wrap up another year and a great season, we ask the same question that Mr. Deltoid asks in A Clockwork Orange. What could possibly be wrong? Well, when you get to work with actors like Malcolm McDowell and Aubrey Morris, nothing is wrong whatsoever. You know, Gil and I have said many times on this podcast that one of the great thrills of doing Tales from the Crypt was that we got to work with the most amazing actors on our little TV show. Pinch me moments abounded. I was a student of film growing up. Clockwork Orange was a, a seminal moment in my own understanding of cinema and what you could do with it. To get to work with the actors who were in A Clockwork Orange, that would have seemed impossible when I was younger. It still seems kind of far-fetched now. And yet it happened. Pinch me. Both Aubrey Morris, Mr. Deltoid, and Malcolm McDowell, Alex, are Tales from the Crypt alumna. Malcolm starred in the Reluctant Vampire episode, Aubrey starred in Till Death, and also was one of the few bright spots in Bordello of Blood. Alas, Aubrey is no longer with us, but Malcolm is doing just fine. He sat in with us on episode 33 and told some amazing stories, especially about making Caligula, another prime example of how not to make a movie or porn, for that matter. You know, the film was a total fuck-up. But I, I kept saying to Gore, well... That's novelist Gore Vidal, the screenplay's author. You, know, you took your name off it. I'm now stuck having to do it. He didn't give you back know. the money, did he? Uh, I don't know. No, he did not. He did not give back the money. Of course he, got he paid, did. He got paid two twenty-five. He got paid. A, he got paid a, a nice chunk of change for for those days. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and he, hey man, hey man, uh, how how ashamed are you really? Uh, the casting was became an issue. Uh, Maria Schneider, and she just passed away recently, unfortunately. A terrific actor. Yeah. She was supposed to play Drusilla. She quit while filming her first sex scene, uh, right in the middle of working with you. Uh, no, she never got. She, she never got that far? No. Hmm. She got as far as a costume fitting huh. and coming up to do a little rehearsal. Oh, the stories people tell. Good God. It, 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 was, so, it, it was nothing like that. Go ahead, carry on. No. Please. Good, good, good. She went down to the seamstress. And, you know, we had Danilo Donati one of the great designers of all time. He did all Fellini's movies. A genius. Such talented so he was, people on this He project. did the costumes and the sets. And, you know, the costumes were literally one stitch here, one stitch there. That was it, open. And you wore a diaper underneath it. Um, she had went down to the seamstress and had them sew up the sides of the dress uh, so that sure, sure. The, the scene was me fondling her breast because, you know, I'm her brother basically. And uh, to be fondling her breast to a modern audience is sort of outrageous. But of course, in Caligula's time, the, it was quite normal. Yeah. And um, they were the only people you could trust with your family. And that's basically who you s stayed with. 
And I tried to get into the dress and I went, wow, um, how did you manage to get this? And uh, uh, Tinto Brass went ballistic. Uh, (laughs) And he really lost it. When he found out what she'd done, he lost it. And she sort of went, fuck you. And he went, fuck you, get off my set. Gilgood, you got to work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you did get you did finally get to work with John in 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 a in a feature. Uh, there's a story about you and John talking about uh, personal finances that John was complaining about having to do movies like this. Yes, he um, he said, "My accountant, you know, I I've been told I've got to cut back." And I went, "Oh dear, John, do you live this high lifestyle?" He goes, "Good God, no." But but I can't afford it, the taxes, you know. Uh, I said, well, where could you cut back? I mean, you've got this beautiful house. He went, oh, yes, yeah, so I can't leave the house. And and I said, and what about you've got this lovely Rolls Royce and a chauffeur? And he goes, I couldn't possibly do without my Rolls. And I went, well, I think that's what they're talking about when they say cut back. He said, well, they're not paying me very much per diem. Um, and I hear you have a villa. I went, well, I do. And, and I tell you, I'd love to share it with you. You can have a whole wing of it. He said, oh, so nice. Thank you so much. And he came and stayed with me for two weeks. And it was adorable. Huh. I had a wonderful time with him. I adored him. He regaled us all these stories. And, you know, everything was, he was telling me about him and Larry when they did um, Romeo and Juliet, you know, and they alternated the parts of, Romeo and Laertes and I'm not Laertes um Mercutio. Mercutio, yeah. Yeah. And he's he'd always say uh, Larry was far better than me. Um he was much more athletic, you know. Um, I just I just had the voice. And I went, Yeah, but what a voice. <laughs> he said, Well Larry's is a pretty good voice too, but he was so much more athletic, you know. And he'd always sort of There's something funny about Gilgood saying, I just have the voice. Yeah, I just had the voice, a voice. If that's how you see yourself, okay. At the the time, the top tax rate in England was 83%, so it was pretty brutal to uh, to people making the kind of money that you guys were were making. And I bumped into Gilgood on Third Avenue. He was shooting Arthur. I didn't even know, you know. And he said, oh, Malcolm, I... Have you seen the film? And I went, no, John, I haven't. He said, oh, frightfully good. I've seen it three times, and I paid twice. (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. He saw it three times and paid twice. And then somebody must have got to him to say, look here. It's an absolutely scandalous film. You can't go around saying you like it. So he then changed his tune and said, oh, frightful film. I don't know why I did it. Frightful. (laughs) (laughs) Gil and Tay Diggs worked together on House on Haunted Hill. Now, I had never met Tay before we interviewed him here, but can I tell you, I really, really like that guy. I I can see why Gil loves him so much. No wonder he gave Stella back her groove. He's a really great guy. Tay talked about overcoming stage fright as a young actor. Uh, Good thing he found a few strategies because Tay also tells 
a great story about acting in a soldier's play off Broadway when one night Denzel Washington, who played the same part in the movie, came to watch Tay's performance. Finally, Tay shared with us the thrill of victory when he won lip sync battle singing Madonna's Vogue. It's very good. I had been in one church play, uh, sang in the gospel choir poorly, Was had crazy, crazy stage fright. Um, huh. But thankfully, you know, at uh, Rochester School of the Arts, they uh, they broke me of that, at least enough to uh, to enjoy performing. And uh, and I kind of found uh, found my calling. How did they cure your stage fright? I think it was just the uh, the uh, uh, the repetition. You know, what I mean, it was, you know, um, but the, the confidence that at, at least you had this you had this down in your head. Sure, sure. Well, you know, you, you take classes with the same students that you're you're performing with and for. So, so you mean the, you know, the repetition of well, just the community. Sure, sure. You know, um, practicing in class and then doing it in on stage, uh, and it's just yes, you know, yes, I think, yes, you yes, know, yes, yes, masters yes. like Kobe Bryant will tell you, you know, if you do something fifteen thousand times, it doesn't matter if you're nervous or not. It's just muscle memory. So it was it was that because I still get, I still get scared today, you know. But uh, you know, as long as I have enough rehearsal. Uh, it is like a muscle and you just let it do its thing. There have been times when I've been so nervous that I've, I've gone up on lines or, you know, there was this one play. I was in a soldier's play off Broadway, New York City. Sure. And I think Denzel Washington was in the audience and he was in the original um, uh, or the, the original movie. A you knew story. he was in the audience. Yes, of course. Of course. OK, so and, it, uh, and it took I you had, out of your oh, head a little bit. One hundred. A lot. It took me out of my head a lot. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna put me in my head, actually, <laughs> too too much in my head. And I had this this beginning sure, sure. monologue. You were sitting um, in the audience next next to Denzel watching you. Oh, I was in his I was in his head, wondering oh. oh, no. You were seeing <laughs> you were seeing your performance through his eyes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's yeah, a lot of gymnastics yeah. inside your head while you're trying to act in a in, in a very good play. Right, right. And okay. I had this, oh. you know, like five page monologue. And uh and I kind of tried to let my muscle memory take over. And before I knew it, I had started to repeat a certain part of the, the monologue. <laughs> oh, no, no. And I didn't realize it until like, yeah. Gosh. So I had to like, you know, uh, while I was, this is where actors, you know, I really give it up to, to actors because while, while I was in the middle of repeating it, I had to figure out where I had gone wrong and how to jump back to where I needed to be without you know trying to not let the audience figure it out mm. um but again i got through it but but the great thing is that once once you flub like that um you, the, the rest of the show is a piece of cake surely surely yeah. Yeah. oh good oh that's good to know they don't do these much anymore but it was like mm. a chemistry a chemistry test on screen that they filmed uh and uh, of all times, to forget my lines, I remember this one scene, um, sitting across from Angela Bassett, um, holding her hand, and I went, I, I couldn't remember how the scene began. And I remember looking at her, just smiling, <laughs> and she, she just squeezed my hand, and I could tell through, she was telling me to just be okay, just relax. Oh, dear. And I remember her squeezing my hand and kind of rubbing it. And then I was able to kind of fall back into my body and start because, you know, I had to do the accent. and You know, I wasn't very. Uh, how do I say this? 
I was confident when it came to my talents, but not confident as a human being. Sure. So, um, yeah, once she, uh, once that she was, kind but of, that was then. That was then. Well, it's it's still, you know, I'm still really? going to therapy for my self-esteem these days. <laughs> well, you, I, hey, I, 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 I'm also in therapy and issues. Yeah. But it feels like you're doing great, man. Just just one. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. One I guy gotta, who's wrestled with, with the very same things and, and I feel it. And yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I feel that struggle. God, I feel that struggle. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Sorry, I got to I got to tell, but tell myself that. Most days you're doing yeah. great, man. You're doing great. <laughs> you are a two time winner of the limps, the lip sync battle show, oh, right? <laughs> these right. are just I, when I found out these things about you because you know, having never met you before, it, these were just fascinating things that <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, acting, schmacting, you know. Tell me about the lip sync battle. Oh man, well, that's one of those shows where uh. You watch it and you're having so much fun that you call them and ask if you can be on oh. it. And uh and I did so and I wanted to I wanted to uh to make a uh, make a splash and try to do something that that I didn't think anybody else had done yet. What's your secret? What's the difference between good lip syncing and great lip syncing? <laughs> it's the blonde wig, blonde wig and red lips with the stubble. That's what did it. <laughs> and then, and what did you wear? <laughs> we worked with the very best of the best on Crypt, actors especially. Among our very favorite actors, we hired her three times and we liked her so much, was Sherry Rose. Sherry told a great story about writing and directing her first feature film. I, I hope I get the title right this time, Me and Will. And then getting the chance to have Oliver Stone back the movie, but with a deal-breaking caveat. What Sherry did in the story, it took guts and integrity. Check it out. We also talked about the writing process, what it was like working for William Friedkin, and what it was like doing an intense sex scene for director William Friedkin. Sherry was a great actor to work with, and she's a great storyteller, too. Yeah, we love Sherry Rose. Cassian Elways at the time was repping the film, and he set up a screening for Oliver Stone. So we went to Oliver Stone's office and screened the movie, and he wanted me to change the ending. And he watched the whole movie. We watched it with him. And uh, I drove home, and I said, I may not ever be able to write, direct, produce, and star in another movie, and I don't want anyone else to mandate what my ending should be. What kind of ending? He, he wanted the, he, he, he just kept live. saying, he kept doing this. The bad girl should live. The bad girl needs to live. I'll put my name on it, but you got to reshoot it, and the bad girl has to live. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really the story I'm trying to tell. You know, I mean, it's hard to talk back to Oliver Stone. I mean, he's Oliver Stone, right? Yeah. But I have to have my own opinion. I have to live by my own creed. And um, so I said no to that. Sometimes I regret that only because 
it could have been a sacrificial lamb so that I could have gone on to maybe make another film mm. um, sooner. Um, and I'm going to, I've been writing still, and I've now started raising money again to start making movies again, which is exciting for me. And I had to put that on hold for a little while because I became a mom and that was important to me to be available to my son. And uh, that was where I chose to put my time and energy. So, but now he's off at NYU and he's at, film school at Tisch. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank yeah, that's you. Great. So he's flown out of the coop and does he does he want to write or direct or does he know yet? I think he wants to write and direct. I think that's his his focus. He's doing some modeling and he's done some acting. Yeah. Uh he's a good looking kid, but I think his focus is on writing and directing. He's got a really good eye for directing and he writes very quickly. Um, I introduced him to Final Draft when he was probably 16, and he just picked it up so quick. He's like, "Oh, drop down over here, over here." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. You don't need. Guess you don't need my help." <laughs> you know. I frankly, I'm, I'm a screenwriter. I'm a screenwriter guy. I, I have Final Draft and screenwriter. I, I, I can't stand Final Draft. I, I like screenwriter, but, but oh, you like screenwriter? Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's a that's a that's a, a screenwriter argument. Yeah, well, I think it, it's whatever. Yeah, it's whatever resonates with you. Whatever helps you get it on the page. Okay. I, I'm 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 fussy about little technical details. Like I said, I, I, right. I, well, I'll tell you, I still write hand. I still write pen to paper, and then I and I write it as if it was looking like a script, and then I transcribe it later and write it that way. I I can't. This doesn't resonate with me. It's it's funny. I the the best class I ever took in high school was typing. And learning how to type was really everything. This is so I, for the most part, I can think like this, and it, it, and then it depends upon the nature of the keyboard. Different keyboards, some keyboards are just not acceptable. It's got yeah, to, they don't feel right. Everything has to flow from the fingertips through the yeah. keyboard. Uh, dialogue, yeah, a lot of dialogue gets written longhand. I don't know. It just it just naturally wants to go that way. I, it doesn't want to go that way. It wants to go this way. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's a mystery. Yeah. I think once a writer, always a writer, you know, I just have, uh, you know, I, I always, I get some of the best scenes or lines just driving through the canyon here. I live out in Malibu and just, I'll start laughing to myself. And, you know, my son got used to me going, it's like, mom, are you writing a scene in your head right now? I'm like, yeah. I mean, you want me to tell you about it? <laughs> sometimes he said, yes, sometimes he says no, but you know, I just start all these, you know, characters are having an issue or something's happening and then somebody said I'm like oh it's perfect I gotta pull over and write this down <laughs> so the first time we hired Sherry at Crip was for Billy Friedkin's episode on a dead man's chest it's about a rock guitarist who gets a tattoo that's a little too lifelike so we have Billy Friedkin directing the episode and it's we're now casting and you walk into the room yes Billy. yes Daniel Allman was my manager uh, she used to be married to Greg Allman, Danielle Dell. She goes, she has do she still is a manager, D2 management. Um, she he got also me in the episode. Yeah, she, yes, he's in the episode. And then I think I had suggested Steve Jones, and you guys hired him. Um we did. And uh and, and what did you do with, with your commission? <laughs> I didn't I never get commission. I never get the gig down. Oh. Sometimes I'll get a dinner or lunch out of something, but usually oh, okay. not even that. Okay. Some, some. So, um, but I remember Danielle telling me, you know, be prepared. And I always, you know, I try to always be prepared. 
And I knew if I was going to read for somebody like William Freakin, I better be prepared. And I better be prepared to the point where if he throws other things at me, I'm ready to pivot and make those adjustments for him. Um, and, you know, immediately, one of my first big auditions that I ever had, I read for, it probably was Parenthood. At the time, they didn't tell us what it was, but I read for Ron Howard down in Miami, mm -hmm. right after I'd done Miami Vice. Um, Ellen, uh, oh, I can't remember her last name right now, but she brought me in the room. And I remember being prepared and Ron Howard thanking me for being prepared. What did you do to prepare? You know, I mean, well, first of all, I just also learned, learned the dialogue. You know, I learned all sides of the dialogue. So even if like if the person reading on the other side of the camera dropped the line, I knew where to pick it up, you know, just that I was just, you know, I took it seriously. I, you know, I learned it, you know, and right. and was off script and ready to go. And then um, made some once choices. an A student, always an A student. Eh? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I made some choices. Right. So and right or wrong, I committed to those and, and what they were. And I asked him, you know what? I mean, the character's name was Miss Vendetta. So I kind of knew that she was tough. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and he 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 allowed me to just play. And then he brought me to new places in the room and you know, he thanked me for being prepared. And he basically said, you know, you're Miss Vendetta. And, and the casting director was not happy about that. And so like, hey, hey, that's not true. We have other people to see. Other people are coming in. Oh, wow. You guys work out that. I'm happy to do it. I'm available. <laughs> you know, it's just so grateful, you know. And I always look at those experiences too. And that, you know, even if you don't get the part, the opportunity to read for William Friedkin or something is you never know what's going to happen. And it's just awesome to meet people like that. You know, it's the people that are talented and like the Ernest impression, was well, amazing yeah, to work with. It's so true. The impression that you make today might not pay off today or yeah. tomorrow. It might pay off a couple of days or weeks or months down yeah. the road, but that's the point. Yeah. And you got to You got to show up. I mean, a lot of the movies that I did in Thailand, the action movies, I mean, listen, they're not the best movies. They're not bad movies. I mean, they're whatever. But I was able to keep earning a living and keep working at what I love doing. And and I worked with the same directors over and over again because, you know, I don't mess around and make them more stressed. I know they have enough to deal with. I'm there to help facilitate what they need. The sex scene in On a Dead Man's Chest mm -hmm. was... Uh, uh, Billy directed it rather forthrightly. He um, he really had had you guys going at it. Yeah, he was. Just, yeah, he was really pushing us. That was that was that was a rough that was a rough day. Doing any sex scene is is hard, you know. And then he wanted it to be raw and and making you know the other actor getting upset, you know, and stuff like Yule. that. So Yule, Yule, was, Vasquez. Yeah, Yule. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he wanted Yule to just get more and more agitated and stuff. So um, he pushed us and he pushed us um, when I was there with Steve Jones, too. When I was like, you know, he killed her, like, you know, like screaming. You got to go deeper. Don't hold anything back. It's tough. You're vulnerable. People are, you know, you know, the camera's on, you know, other people are going to be watching it later. You know, you want to look good. Those are not never easy. <laughs> it's a work environment, but you're still naked and they're not. Yes. There's, there's just something in the power structure of the room yes. that, that, that's, that seems, yeah, there's just an oddness to it. Yeah. It's who you work with too. Yule was amazing. I mean, he's just a gentleman. With William, and I didn't expect this from William freaking either, 
I knew that his job wasn't to make me comfortable. And I accepted that. Barry Primus was another guest who Gil knew, but I had never met before. Barry did the podcast and Barry was another delight. While he's appeared in movies like Boxcar Bertha, The River, Space Camp, Mistress, and Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, Barry's mostly been a New York theater guy. He told a great story about the first time he auditioned for Jerome Robbins, who, despite that first audition, later became a friend. And he told a great story about Jerome Robbins and Zero Mostel. When you auditioned for Jerome Robbins, I, I, I saw an interview that you did where he described your, your audition it's the worst audition. the worst audition ever. Where did you see that? That's great. That's true. There's a book on there's a book that quotes that. There's a yeah. book by Louis Zorch on on auditions. I, I gave I, I came to see Jerome Robbins that Anna sent me for. Anna sent me to meet two people of my life. Jerome Robbins and Leah Kazan. Anna sent me to those people. So I came to see Jerry and auditioned for this play called Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet. Sure. I'm yeah, I'm so sad. Well, I couldn't make head or tail of a goddamn script, <laughs> but I had to meet Jerry. So they had given me the thing and I was looking at it. And then they called me in. Jerry was at the end of a long hallway sitting at a, a desk, nothing on the desk, just a little tiny desk. And I came walking in and he kept watching me with a cigarette, biting on the cigarette, looking at me. And then I, I read and he said, uh-huh. Now, that's the worst audition I've ever heard. <laughs> the worst. He said, what were you thinking? I said, oh, I don't know. Said, Listen, Anna Sokolo sent you here. Anna says you're very talented, and Anna is somebody who knows things. Now, I don't know, from listening to that reading, whether you're either an idiot or you're extremely unique talent. I have no idea. But since Anna sent you, I'm going to put you in the play. Let's try to find this out. Don't ever do that again, he said. Now get out of here. And I left. And that's how I got my job with Jerome Robbins, mind you. And then Jerry became a very important person in my life. So Zero Mostel, who is a theater animal beyond theater animals, you know. Indeed. Unstoppable theater animal. Who I used to see in Ratner's restaurant down on 2nd Avenue. Remember, Gil? So. Sure. Great roles. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic waiters who would tell you off, you know, all the time. I One time, my father and I had the big menu. We were looking at it, and, he, and I, we looked at it for a few minutes. What do you want? He said, what do you want? What do you want? The Debbie waiter kept saying, come on, come on. What do you want? I said, well, well, what's it? I think we'll have two, um, Barry, right? Two mushroom and barley soups. He said, big deal. Grab the menu and walk off. <laughs> And they were just incredibly fantastic characters, you know. Yeah. Nobody could fire them, nobody could hire them, you know. They were just they just were there. But that that's it. You don't want it, you don't get it, you get it, you want it, let's eat, let's go. Next, you know, <laughs> that's it. They're in now. But Jerry, Jerry was sitting in rehearsal with 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 um, with me. I was alone with him in the in the aisle watching them. He said to Zero, Zero would put his hand, I think, I think it was Austin Pendleton was playing the other part and was playing the part and, and he ha hands him a bowl or something. And Jerry, and Jerry was supposed to take the bowl and either maybe drink out of it or put it down. So when he handed it to him, Zero put his hand in it and went, oh, oh this fish. And he did the whole thing with the fish jumping out. And Jerry said, Zero, Zero, he yelled up on the stage, what? 
What you say? What? What? He said, zero, please. All right. Back. Reversed it again. Gave him the bowl. Put his head. <laughs> zero. Come on. Let's move on. Let's go on. You know? The no, no. So finally, after they let it go, they went, they went by it. Now they had to run through the play, right? They had to run through the scene. And the scene comes up. And the guy, Austin, has the bowl in his hand. He's looking at Zero. And Zero's looking at the bowl. And Jerry leans forward. And Zero gets the bowl. Of course, he puts his hand. And he goes, and, and, and Jerry turns to me and he says, isn't he great? The movie and TV business attracts all kinds of creative people to it beyond just actors and writers and designers and directors. A lot of people who'd otherwise be scientists end up in show business. Hollywood heyday actress Hedy Lamarr famously helped invent the technology that ultimately led to Radar. That's when she wasn't acting in movies like Ecstasy, Samson and Delilah, and Algiers. People like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, and Bill Nye, they all learned how to work the camera just as well as they learned astrophysics. Charlie Fleischer is in that club. His parents saw him as Dr. Fleischer. He saw himself as Roger Rabbit, plus a lot of other great voices. Gil and I saw him as Wally Enfield in Demon Knight. However you see him, one thing you can't deny, Charlie Fleischer is a very intelligent guy. Well, I'm uh, a part scientist and part artist. So the artist wakes up and says, well, it's a beautiful day. And the scientist part goes, yes, but how does it work? <laughs> now, when you, you know, as I said, you started in D.C. and then you your first as you jumped out of the nest, your first goal was medical school. Well, I thought I was going to do that before I really entered college. You know, just as a child growing up and there are friends of my parents that always address my birthday card to Dr. Charles Fleischer. You know, it's kind of a typical Jewish boy. Yeah, yeah, you should be a doctor. What are you going to do? Be an actor? What are you crazy? So, uh, mm -hmm. but I always have had a love of science and scientists. And uh, I have in patented inventions. I have a paper on origin of gamma ray bursts. Uh, what was your experience working with Bob? I love Bob Zemeckis. Uh, he's one of the greatest ever. I mean, Bob, Back to the Future. To uh, that's right, that's right. Jeez, uh, there's a lot of different things that I work with him. Uh, Polar Express, sure, sure. Um, yeah, he's uh, just a great guy and a great artist. Yeah, you know his enthusiasm. And there's, there's like some sets you're on, and you know maybe a grip will have an idea and say, hey, well, what if you put if you put that thing over there. I'm Frank Talbot, and you're telling me how to direct. Get the fuck off my set! You know, but if somebody says something Zemeckis is a good idea, I go, eh. You know, he's just uh, just a beautiful human. Yeah, we felt the same way. We worked with him on Tales from the Crypt for many years, and it was always a delight. Always, always great fun. Yeah, great talent. What? And a great person. They don't always come into the same package, you know? Some people are really talented, and they just, uh, their talent may be overpowers their dignity I'm what sure was the process that. like of of creating the because the voice really comes out of character the thing about that, that makes roger rabbit really such a great character is that you can feel his soul well, and I so think it's the, uh, the essence of any uh any performance art you know or or i would say any art you know the, the your soul is somehow 
transmogrified into the medium. It could be, you know, a Kandinsky painting or uh, a piece by Mozart or Beethoven's seventh second movement. Indeed. You know, that, that, it's that transfer of soul. It's, but, it's, uh, but it's easier said than done. Well, as is the case, it's easier sold than sold. Well, there you go. True enough. I've known Mark Ivanir socially for years and years. Alas, we haven't worked together yet. But it's amazing what you learn about your friends when you suddenly have to research them for an interview. You learn that as much as you think you know them, they're even more interesting than you knew. As good work does, your, your work in Schindler's List got you more work. And eventually you ended up working with De Niro uh, in The Good Shepherd. You won the Silver Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival for that. Yep. It took some time to uh, get cast in it. It's one of another project that took a very long time until it, it happened. And then so I had a meeting with him after I read for it. Then they asked me to come and meet with him while he was filming Meet the Fockers in Los Angeles. So I, we sat in his trailer and talked about the uh, the part. And what was funny is that I, I kind of, well, there's a few stories about that. But one of them was that in the audition, the original audition, I kind of added because I'm playing a character that is being severely drugged. There's a interrogation. I told you my name. Tell I told me you a hundred times. Because we're, my we're name. not going anywhere. I don't want you to know that. We are not going anywhere. Today, tomorrow, next week, next you month. Know, he is your mom. I'm not Do you understand? I'll be right in front of you. Else. The same position. This is my name. What is your name? My name is Valencia Marigorish Milan. This is my name. That's Tell me your name. I don't have a different name. Tell I don't it. Have that. Tell it. Tell it to me again. Tell it to me again. Tell it to me again. Tell 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 me I remember assistant, uh, Niro's assistant calling me and says, so uh, you sang this song in the audition. We want to keep that, but we don't want to get the rights for, I mean, it, we need the rights for the song that we don't have that. But Universal gave us another song. And so here's the song. And I call him back 20 minutes later. It's like, look, I mean, De Niro most probably knows as an actor, you, if you choose something, there's a reason. And I chose this thing, this song for a reason, because it says it does something to me emotionally. The other one doesn't. Uh, so just if you can uh, convey that to Bob. And literally three minutes later, I get a phone call from this guy. He says, Bob said, just stay with this song. He'll do whatever needed for you to have that because that's the most important thing. And then uh, it, it, it wasn't incredible. The whole shooting process was incredible. He was so very much uh, tuned to what you, me as an actor, what I needed, including mm -hmm. at a certain, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but including in a certain stage, 
just stopping uh, a there was a scene that was supposed to be done and then they canceled it because of problems, financial problems and time problems and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I called him and I said, again, look, it's that scene is really important to me uh, for the last uh, very significant scene that I have. Uh, so I don't know, of course, you're the director, you can do, you should do whatever, but I'm just wanted to let you know. And he stopped uh, everyone that were getting ready for the new scene and all the light and, and, and the set and everything. And he said, no, we're going to actually do that scene because, because it's important. And that, which cost them, I'm sure a lot of money, but that's, that, that, that was him. He is really focused on what you as an actor need. And thank God the result was really good because because how he he was he was so attentive and uh, and went for what he he trusted he, you he said yeah we were standing in the middle of the set me him and the dp who was if i mean hindsight i i heard he was the producer's man and he was uh representing the producer's uh, position and he was like we don't need it we don't need it and it was me and him for 15 minutes talking about it. And then De Niro's like, who was silent, just looking at it. And it's like, uh, okay, uh, I'm going to go with the actor. And everything stopped and they went back and uh, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful, uh, and it actually it seems like I'm going to do, uh, that's a bit of a, I didn't sign any NDA, but I think, I might do a Netflix show with De Niro in the next couple of months. Oh, cool. uh, we are just in negotiations for that. So oh, cool. that would be really uh, exciting to get back. We haven't seen each other for, what, 15 years, 14 years, something like that. You know, having experienced the joys of putting the team back together again, it's, uh, it's good to put the team back together again. Yeah, no, that's, that's really exciting. You were the, the fourth lead in the late quartet opposite uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Christopher Walken, and, and Catherine Keener. That's a, another terrific piece of work. That, that was, that was an, an incredible, really incredible experience because sitting oh, with these three people was, it was like going to school again, to acting school. I mean, that was what, uh, 10 years ago? And that was about 20 years uh, after my last acting school experience. But, but it was really, really sitting with masters and, and seeing them at work. And just, just wow, I, how, how I, I, need to, I need to remember that and that and that. Like in particular, it's just the way... All of them were so open. There was so much improvisation happening there, uh, and and uh, listening. And uh, I mean, Phil was was just an amazing guy. I I I feel so you know bad about, of course, him going away. He was on the list of my best. If you if you put five best actors ever, he would be on that list. Hmm. And so I'm. I feel kind of blessed being part of that event and and working with these people i mean and here's here's a funny story about them so there's 
we had a one week rehearsal period uh, on which we would come in the morning and just do every scene and, and go through the scenes and rehearse them. And so we're sitting one morning and Phil and, and Catherine, who were friends uh, besides the, the, the shooting they, from before, they have like something is happening there between them. They're laughing and they're whispering to each other. And like an hour and a half into the thing, there's a break. And uh, we would we would go and smoke a cigarette outside after uh, like in between uh, rehearsals. So all three of us step outside and smoke cigarette. And I asked them, so guys, what's what's going on? What's the little thing that happening between you and Phil is saying so? Look, I mean, we were just talking about how everyone thinks we are as like I'm an Oscar winning actor and Catherine was nominated and we did this and that and then and that and how insecure we are and how little we know and what, you know, we, we how stupid and not adequate we feel and that, you know, so the gap between that and what we are having when people are looking at us and talking that that was kind of funny and we were kidding about that and to me it was so eye-opening that this guy who was nominated for three oscars in the past four years and won one and Catherine, who were in, in these and that's what they feel so wow Gill worked with Brandon Routh on Superman Returns. They bonded immediately. When Brandon sat in for a conversation with us, I understood immediately why and how that happened because I too immediately bonded with Brandon. There's just something, well, it's not bond, is it? It's Superman. He's Superman. As Gill and I have discussed here, we never hire actors to act because the camera will see it and then we'll have to cut it out. We hire actors to be who they are as honestly as possible. The best actors, they're the most willing to put their raw emotions at the service of the character and the story. For most casting to work, there has to be a lot of the character in the actor to begin with. So when you go and cast Superman, since Clark Kent is a disguise and Superman the actual character, you have to find an actor who's more than a little like Superman just by being himself. Hey, why the fuck do we keep coming back to this character? It, it, because he's it, the, because he's one person who who in a way is saying it's so. For me, what Superman is, he's an alien. You know, came from another place. He's a human. He's a human. He is the same emotional, whatever. All that structure is the same as us, right? So he's just able to sit in his own skin because because he has powers that show that. He has these powers that show that his inner, that he, he, he has a great power so he can have great power internally also. And, and it's okay to share that inner fortitude or compassion or empathy and all of the things, the wisdom that he has. Um, he, he can justify it with his physicality somehow. Yeah, and we well, don't he, as human. I, I really, I, you're absolutely so. I mean, he, he's invincible, but not emotionally. Uh, well, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, he, he is, he is vulnerable emotionally. Yes. And that's, you know, in spite of all the superpower, 
he's still yes there's kryptonite but there's also that attachment to to other living creatures yeah i think that's, that's what made our movie so different than any other movie about superman before or since so fast forward to the my college experience and going to imta meeting my first manager at this you know big big cattle call like thousands of people there oh like one two percent of them are actually gonna get signed with somebody and become you know do anything with it 5.5 percent actually make any money at be me you um, you you were one of them i was one of them and there are a couple other people hand people hand other people still working my first manager, uh, my first meeting was a gentleman, a uh, lovely gentleman, Jeff Maroney. Um, and he had a, a management company, Beverly Strong, and, uh, and uh, said, I was at a meeting with him. And, he, you know, he was like, oh, so, you know, I think you really, you got a great look and, you know, you're a little green. Um, uh, and I'm like, huh? And then I found out what that meant. Uh, but, uh, you know, you got a good look. And, and you, has anybody ever told you that you look like uh, Christopher Reeve? And I was like, uh, no. Well, you, you do, and, and I'm a big fan, and, you know, if there's ever a Superman movie or, or film, we're definitely going to get you get you in on that, because you'd probably have a good shot at that. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And that was the first time I've ever had that, that I recall anybody mentioning that to me. So then fast forward to 2000. What was, what was, all right, so, but but someone says this thing to you, mm -hmm. and, you know, you know what this franchise is, you, you, you know what that is, you, you know, you you had seen Christopher Reeve's work in Superman. You does this connect in any way in your head? Is this is this beyond fantastical? Is there any does any part of you go? You know what? Well, it does because yeah, because I'm from Iowa. Because I am rather like Clark Kent, um, and have been uh, certainly was at that time in my life more. Even it all made sense, and it's comedy, and I love that movie. And I have fond memories of watching that movie, but also throwing up because I had, I was so excited from jumping around and assuming before it came on TV that I gave myself a migraine headache or whatever. I had a migraine headache. Who knows if I gave it to whatever. I had a migraine headache and was throwing up, uh, laying on the couch with a metal bowl below me, like, you know, throwing up through, through most of the movie. And that was my first Superman experience. But I had my pajamas. My mom still has my Superman pajamas, a little cape. <laughs> that's, my, that's my first Superman memory and experience. I it, touched, had, it, 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 it touched you. I don't, I don't know. I mean, yes, I obviously it did, but I don't know the thoughts leading up to a kid, a five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid being excited to watch Superman. I just, I remember jumping, literally jumping on, my brain says a couple jumps on the couch and this, and then stick and throwing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but good um, enough. So, so yeah. you weren't up to the wire work at that point. No, yeah, not yet. I also had a dream probably around the same age. I don't know, from six to eight. It feels like age uh, six to nine. I don't know. I had a dream that I was flying in a big metropol metropolitan city. I was flying as a kid. I was, you know, whatever age I was at the time, flying and, you know, like this. And around me, also flying, were koalas that were wearing capes. And the movie was filmed in Australia. 
Um, wow. What is that? What is that? I have no idea. So putting those, a couple of those factors into, and hmm. my na general naivete and glass half full attitude, uh, went out to Los Angeles thinking, yeah, sure, it might happen. It could be Superman someday. Why not? Who better than I? And uh, and Brian Singer gets the gig to he comes aboard as the as the director of Superman Returns, and yeah. uh, he had seen your audition for McJig. Yes. So and that whole thing, which I will tell much more concisely, I can't. That's a whole. That's a whole other podcast about this whole this this whole weirdness. I was working at Lucky Strike as a bartender. I just gotten a job there. And uh, I dressed up for a Halloween costume because I needed to make money because I was working Halloween night and there was like a $100 prize, $100 prize for an employee that dressed. And I, this Superman thing is kind of built for me a little bit. Like it'd been like a, like a you know, and so I dressed up as, as a picture that's, you know, kind of a famous picture or was back in the day of me, a Superman shirt with, you know, a suit over it. And my, I put a little wire in my tire and made it go back this way. And I got glasses, Clark, and I was, I was Clark turning into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I won the hundred bucks. It was huge. And my friend, uh, Terrence took a picture or had a picture taken and, and then he put it on his like Facebook or MySpace or whatever, Friendster or whatever it was back in the day. And that's a picture that people took and used uh that was october of 2003 prior to that prior to that meeting i had uh, i ended up at a birthday party with a woman who was the assistant to jj abrams okay i didn't know this at the time i'm having a conversation with her. she's like oh daniel you look a lot like superman has everybody ever told you that i was like oh yeah my man my you know my manager and i was oh well, well my boss is uh, you know writing the the next uh, superman movie and i was like oh really uh it's like, yeah, and, and you'd be great for it. I was like, really? Well, no, I thought they were they were doing the Nick Cage thing. Like, I'm too old for that. She's like, no, no, they're doing a whole other thing. He's younger and all this stuff. And I go, oh, wow, my brain is just like uh, on fire. I'm just like, you know, if you're giving me my your headshot, you know, maybe I'll I, I can give it to him. You know, my my boss, my, you know, my, my he's just the writer. He doesn't, I don't have, you know, have any power necessarily, but maybe he can get it to the producer, John Peters. Um, and uh, it's like, okay. So the next day or two days later, I drive into ABC. Uh, I hadn't really been there much before. I'm driving on a lot. She got me a pass. And I, well, I walk into the alias uh, offices. And I find uh, her. And I give her my headshot. And I said, okay, thanks. And then, then, then I was like, oh, this is crazy. And, then, and I leave. And I said, well, who knows what that is? I have a memory that Don actually came to Lucky Strike but now I don't know if that's real. Mm. I have a dream that John came with him and himself and an assistant. John Peters. Peters. The, the producer of the at movie. At some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, I don't know when. I don't know if that's, I remember. Anyway, so that was October. I don't think anything happened in there. Then January comes, comes, comes around, pilot season, busy, busy, busy. Again, audition for the show for CW called the mountain um on it i see that mick g is a producer uh mick g's directing the uh, superman returns or, or, or a flyby uh mm -hmm. 
I go, oh, huh. I bet if I, maybe if I get a callback, he'll see me in the callback and he'd be like, you should be Superman. Um, so I worked on really hard on the audition it was for a character with edgy guy, like a cocky, like guy. I don't do that well, especially then I no edge, not, you know, didn't know how to do that. I had a fine audition though. And, and, and they brought me, they, they brought me back for callback. I'm like, oh, he's gonna, he might be there. He might be there. He wasn't there. But who? But um, uh, so close, so far. But but his producing partner Stephanie Savage was there. So I didn't know who Stephanie was, but we're talking, and then you know, casting director stepped out of the room for a little bit, and we're talking, and she's getting a coffee, and she's from, she went to University of Iowa, and we, and she was also an ice skater or something. We talked about ice skating. I like. Oh, work bonding about the University of Iowa and I'm just kind of like gently like charming, but I'm not saying anything about Superman, but I'm just showing all these qualities, I guess, I think in my, you know, who else? I was 23, four, I don't know, out of my mind. And, and uh, then I left. And uh, my manager calls me like a week later and he's like, I had some good news and bad news. Um, and I was like, uh, what do you want first? And I was like, uh, I guess the, 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 the bad news. He's like, well, you might want to pull over. I was like, okay, well, the bad news is that you didn't get the job. And I was bummed because they thought maybe they could write a different part for me because I just wouldn't fit the mold of the character that I needed. But they didn't work out. And I needed my job. Um, but the good news is uh, they want, uh, you know, Mick G wants to meet with you. They're setting up a meeting for you to make, meet with Mick G. So I literally created my own meeting. I mean, I, you know, I... I, I did. I, I, yeah. I, would I have seen him otherwise? I don't know. Through the cast, natural casting process, possibly, but with different, very different energy, mm. uh, I would have been coming in. So then I had a meeting with him about thirty minutes. We talked nothing about Superman. Um, uh, I left. I met John there. I think he was in the office. I might have met you too, Gil, but I didn't know your name, and right. I knew John because uh, the assistant had talked about John. Um, uh, and, uh, and then I later came back and read with the casting directors and then read a callback with McGee and then the screen test. And that's where I met Gil at the screen test. And then I didn't get the job and nobody got the job. And then I was destroyed. My life went, <laughs> no, I mean, my, I was like, ah, oh, yeah. I was this close to the sun and I burned up before I got there. And, uh, and then August, Friday, the 13th of, uh, of August to 2004 rolled around and everything changed. Indeed it did. See you next time, everyone. And happy holidays. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.